Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver. And today we will be talking about the ESPN card that occurred this past Saturday night, which had the main event, a very entertaining main event between Jose Pedraza and Richard Comey. We will have another, and this time very extended, question and answer session from the great listeners that that, uh, follow me on Twitter. And then I will end the show with my prediction on the Luis Ortiz-Andy Ruiz fight that that will be happening this Sunday night. And my 25th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, historical overview retrospective bio on one of the greatest and most underrated Mexican legends of all time, Ricardo Finito Lopez. Now on to Saturday night's action that was broadcasted live on ESPN. I will start with the main event, Richard Comey versus Jose Pedraza. Pedraza seemed a bit off the first five rounds. He seemed a bit lethargic, and this fight was a tale of two halves, the first five rounds and the last five rounds. And before anybody claims that this was a robbery, that this was an unjustifiable decision, there were several rounds that could have gone either way. First five rounds, Comey was landing that right cross at will, even when Pedraza switched from conventional to softball, he had a hard time avoiding that right hand the first five rounds. And Comey has one of the best right crosses in the lightweight division. Now both fighters fighting at 140 pounds, and it's only five pounds more. That power will uh, will and has, in my opinion, gone up with Comey as he's moved up to 140 pounds. He landed that right hand several times, hurt Pedraza, with, with with that right cross, and after five rounds, I had Comey winning three of the first five rounds. So I had him up 48-47. Second half of the fight, in my opinion, was Pedraza dominating. But then again, there were still several rounds. Um, After eight rounds, I had the fight dead even because I had Pedraza winning two of the next three rounds. And then... 9 and 10, even though Comey was winded, Comey suffered a, a, a headbutt that the referee, for some idiotic reason, called it a punch. It was a headbutt. and They didn't even go to replay. I don't understand. The, the, man, today, boxing referees are just like boxing announcers at an all-time low in terms of competence, in terms of skill level. That was a headbutt. Anyway, the headbutt altered the fight because from that point on, Pedraza was more aggressive and, in my opinion, carried the action. Even though after eight rounds had it dead even, the ninth and tenth rounds, spirited action, both men going for the gusto. I had... Comey winning two very close rounds in both 9 and 10. Both men did great work. Both men landed great shots. Uh, Pedraza, now that Pedraza was fighting out the softball position, he was landing his left cross at will, especially being that uh, 
Comey was bleeding badly from the side of his left eye. By the way, Pedraza's eyes were both closing and his nose was bleeding. So both men suffered <laughs> suffered and a ton of punishment. And you could tell by the way both men looked at the end of the fight. Tough round ended. I had it six rounds to four, 96-94 Comey. The fight was scored. One judge had it the same way I had it. Another judge had Pedraza winning 97-93. I'm not going to bitch and moan about that scorecard because there were several rounds. There were at least four to five rounds, maybe even more, that could have gone either way, depending on what you like. Pedraza, throughout the entire fight, did tremendous body work. He dominated to the body, and Comey landed the hardest shots for most, for the most part to the face. Both men uh, jabs. Uh, both men jabbed to set up their their power. This was a very good fight. Now, not a fight of the year, but very good fight from a technical aspect uh, and from an action aspect aspect. And the third, the third judge had the fight even ninety five ninety five. I can't grab with it. People were bitching and moaning, saying it was a robbery. Pedra, uh, Pedraza's Pedraza and his camp felt they were fleeced. I cannot call a fight a robbery if four or five rounds could have gone either way. The only thing that needs to happen is that both men need to fight each other immediately. Nothing was accomplished. Nothing was settled from this fight. And it would be a very entertaining second fight. Both men both men will either fight for a title with a win or become a gatekeeper with a loss. So a lot was riding on this fight. I thought the draw was was a justifiable decision. And let's do a rematch. And Comey's dangerous. Uh, Richard Comey's a dangerous 140-pound fighter because of that right hand. Um, He's not the greatest boxer, but he's got a great chin. He's got a lot of heart. And like he showed in his fight against Lomachenko, the man doesn't stop fighting. And he's always got that one-punch power in his right hand. So I'm hoping that he and Pedraza face each other again. As far as the undercard goes, this was one mismatch after another. Uh, real quick, and I know that people, but before I get to Jared Anderson, I want to talk about the new heavyweight prospect that uh, that uh, uh, Top Rank has, he won a silver medalist at the last Olympics, Richard Torres. Torres hasn't shown anything to me. He's fighting these fucking dudes from a morgue. Until he steps up and fights real fighters, I haven't seen enough to think if he's going if he's going to be a heavyweight contender or future champion. So I'll leave it at that. Jared Anderson, and this will segue into a question, one of the two questions that... uh. Big Malcolm Play cousin uh, uh, sent me for the question and answer session. Jared Anderson beat another stiff. First 12 fights of his career, Jared Anderson has beaten stiff after stiff after stiff. I see the comparisons, and I agree with the comparison. He does remind me of a young Riddick Bowe. And if you look at the trajectory, first 12 fights of Riddick Bowe's career juxtaposed with Jared Big Baby Anderson's first 12 fights similar fighters guys that were there just to be beat up and 
put to sleep and to make you look good. But Jared has a tremendous skill set. I've said this before. In my opinion, he's a future heavyweight champion of the world and will be, in my opinion, and you guys could take me to task because he hasn't fought anybody to prove that yet, but the skill set there is, is there for me to believe that he's the next great American heavyweight. That being said, now I'm comparing, going back to comparing Riddick Bow to Jared Anderson. Jared Anderson is only 22 years old, so he can work on this, but Riddick Bow's first 12 fights happened in an 18-month period. We're going on three years. Jared Anderson's pro career, Jared Anderson's first fight was October of 2019. He only has 12 fights in three years. And don't give me that pandemic bullshit because if I'm not mistaken, he fought five or six times during the pandemic. This is the first time he's fought in 2022 for a young up-and-coming stud like Jared Anderson. You cannot go almost nine months in a year without fighting. This man should be fighting every month, at the least every two months. Top rank. Bob Arum, put this man, put this man in the ring more often. And now, to the question and answer session, because it's a perfect segue to a question Malcolm, uh, Big Malcolm asked. And Big Malcolm asked, as I go to the Ask Rob Silverfeed, let me get that. All right, now I'm here. All right, this is uh, Big Malcolm X's play cousin's first question. Eddie Hearn said that he wants Anthony Joshua to face a top 15 contender for his next fight. Jared Anderson is currently ranked number 14. Could it happen and who wins and why? That fight's not happening right now. It's too much of a risk for Anderson right now, and Bob Arum is not going to put his prized heavyweight prospect in the ring with a former two-time world champion who still who still is a very good fighter. And Anthony Joshua and Eddie Hearn are not going to fight Jared Anderson because Anthony Joshua makes $20 million plus. His two fights with uh, Alexander Usyk, he made anywhere from 70 to $80 million. He made $40 million in his last fight against Usyk. He's not going to make nowhere near the $20 million average he's had since he became heavyweight champion of the world. Even as a contender... Anthony Joshua can get a huge, huge payday fighting in England, and especially if he fought who I wish he would fight next, and I hope they make this fight happen. Despite the fact that neither man are heavyweight champion in the world, I want to see, and the public wants to see, the most anticipated heavyweight fight in the in America right now. It's not Usyk versus Tyson Fury. In America, it would be Deontay Wilder versus Anthony Joshua. Both men will make over $50 million in that fight. Joshua is used to getting those big paydays. How much would he make against a Jared Anderson? Five, maybe $10 million? Anderson hasn't gotten to that stature yet where Joshua can get that uh, a payday. Now, I do see this fight happening eventually in possibly two years if Joshua's still fighting. And Anderson, by that time, I believe, will hold one of those uh, fictitious sanctioning body belts. But I'm not going to answer the second part of the question, Malcolm, because I don't think that fight's going to happen. If and when that fight does happen, then I'll go ahead and make a prediction. 
Now, I want to get to Malcolm's other question before I go to the rest. Let me see. Okay. Naomi Inoue, he 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 uh, he commends me on 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 the podcast I did talking about a Naomi Inoue's historical uh, overview, and he asks, "Do you think he beats Cool Boy Steph Stephen Fulton? Does boxing need more tournaments? And what was your best and worst tournament formats? In my opinion, the best tournament formats were the World Boxing Super Series." Uh, tournaments that happened pre-pandemic with the cruiserweight. That's when we saw Usyk become undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world. He shined on that tournament. Naomi and Noe shined on that tournament. Uh, uh, Jose, um, not Jose Ramirez, Josh Taylor and Regis Prograce gave us one of the greatest 140-pound title fights of all time in that tournament. So that in my opinion, is the greatest format. And I think that's done. That's not happening because all the available world champions now have signed exclusive deals with big-time promoters like Matchroom, Top Rank, Golden Boy, etc. Uh, the World Boxing Super Series w- were able to get these fighters like Nio and Noe, like Josh Taylor, like Regis Prograce, who, who at the time did not, have exclusive deals that's no longer the case so i don't see that happening again but that was a great format and it's been over two years since they've done anything so i think that format is is done the worst tournament format i ever saw was back in 1976 the abc don king ring magazine united states heavyweight tournament that was scandalous uh don king paid ring magazine now we'll get to ring magazine later on in the podcast money to make up fictitious rankings for heavyweights that had no business being in this tournament it was a farce and it was pulled after a few fights because Back in 1976, we didn't have social media, but the national media and the boxing media, once they found out about the chicanery between Don King and Ring Magazine, blasted both and ABC, and ABC pulled the plug, and rightfully so. Now, on to my next question. And the next question is from... This is a non-boxing question, but my buddy from Uganda, Kevin, asked, what's your philosophy of life? Ladies and gentlemen, my philosophy of life is when do your best at whatever you can do, whether it's a relationship, whether it's uh, your, your job, your profession, whether it's raising a child, do your best, do your best. Give it 100% because at the end of the day, if you don't give 100% and things go awry in that job with your child, with your woman or your man, you're going to kick yourself in the head. And it's come to light for me in 2022 because recently my girlfriend of eight and a half years and I, we broke up and I'm going to be honest with you. I gave 100%. I gave 100%. I 
treated her like the queen she is. But there was underlying factors that caused our first breakup six years ago that came to the surface again. I'm not going to go into detail because I'm not going to put uh, my beautiful ex's uh, news on blast or what, what. Just say that we came to a mutual understanding that those underlying factors weren't going to be able to overcome, be overcome. But I can rest, I could be rest assured, and I could rest easily knowing that I gave it my all. She knows this. We talked about it. Um, then my son passed away this year, and I busted my ass raising this young man. Um, from by myself from the ages of from when he was two to when he left me at 21 to go live in Florida. When he went to Florida, he engaged in bad habits that I had no control over because he was in Florida. I was saying he was a grown man. Grown men and grown women are going to do their own decisions. The only thing you you do as a parent is to show them what you believe is the right way to live, and it's up to them to either follow your lead or to go a different path. My beloved son decided to go a different path. And unfortunately, he passed away five months ago at the tender age of 29. So my philosophy on life, Kevin, is to give it your all. And if it doesn't go your way, if it's for some reason, even though you gave 100% in your job, in your relationship, at being a parent, with your family, uh, in a friendship, whatever, if it ends badly, as long as you gave 100%, you shouldn't have any regrets. My regret is that I'm no longer with my lady, and I wish my son was still alive, but I can rest I can rest easily knowing that I gave my all with both situations. Great question, um, Kevin. And um, I just realized that I didn't answer Malcolm's question about Inoue versus Stephen Fulton when that fight happens. So let me break it down now because I do see this fight happening next year because Inoue fights Paul Butler for the undisputed Bantamweight Championship of the World in, uh, I believe, is this December coming up. He's going to put Paul Butler in the fucking hospital. Ladies and gentlemen, the only way Paul Butler could beat Nioa Inoue is if Nioa Inoue is blindfolded and has one arm tied behind his back, and then maybe Butler went two or three rounds and go to 12-round decision. Now, everyone knows he's destroying Paul Butler. Paul Butler is not a raisin on Inouye's ass when it comes to boxing talent, power, uh, brilliance inside the ring. So that's a done deal. After that, Inouye would have cleaned out the Bantamweight division, and all he's got left to do is to go up to 122 and face Stephen Coolboy Fulton, hopefully for the undisputed 122-pound championship, because Fulton could be undisputed champion by the time these two men face each other. And that would be a great fight. Fulton has a lot of Meldrick Taylor in him. So you're not going to be able to outbox Inouye because Inouye, like a Thomas Hearns, has that great jab that you cannot hit and move against because that jab stays in your face. To beat Inouye, you have to take chances like Nonino Donaire did in their first fight 
attack him, go to the body, and land power shots. Fulton can be, like Meldrick Taylor, a very aggressive fighter. He would have to out-hustle Inouye and take those incredible left hooks and right crosses that come off the jab in order to win a close decision. That's his only shot at beating Inouye. I don't see that happening, but that's the only the only way. And Fulton is the only guy, in my opinion, with the ability at 118 or 122 to beat Inouye right now. That being said, I don't believe it will happen. And when and if that fight does occur next year, I'll give an even more complete rundown and a, and a surefire prediction on my part. Now on to the next question. And the next question is from LL School K. And LL School K asks, when we talk, with all due respect, Robert, when we talk of heavyweights like Flip, I have the hell you say his name, Hervichik, whatever the fuck you say that dude's name, and Zhang not being good due to lack of defense, Correct me if I'm wrong. Most heavyweights lack defense throughout history, with exception of Fury, Ali, Tyson, Usyk. So what makes today's heavyweights different from the previous? No, they're not different. In the history of the heavyweight division, there haven't been a lot of great defensive heavyweights, without a doubt. Their best defense has been their best offense. Last week on the podcast, Garrett Gonzalez, the CEO of Fight Game, Media Network and myself talked about Usyk's best defense like Evander Holyfield was his offense where he would throw so many combinations that would it would keep a great offensive fighter busy and not able to utilize their offensive weaponry. But Flip and, and Zhang, they're horrible. As a matter of fact, to piggyback on what Malcolm was saying, it's more likely that Flip fights Jared Anderson. And with that horrible defense, Jared Anderson is putting Flip in the fucking hospital. They call Flip the boogeyman in heavyweight division? The man's defense is non-existent. All right? Ali from 1960 to 1967, because of his speed and combination punching and movement, was damn near impossible to hit when he lost a step in the 1970s as shown in his first fight against Joe Frazier he had to rely more on that great chin George Foreman best defense was his incredible offense Joe Frazier was an underrated defensive fighter early in his career he was never the same after that first Ali fight and then Foreman two years later almost killed him in that two round destruction uh so those guys like Zhang and Flip, they'll make LL, they'll make great fights against fighters of their ilk against each other. But when they fight the elite fighters like Usyk, Joshua, Wilder, uh, eventually Jared Anderson, they're going to be put, uh, Tyson Fury, they're going to be put out to pasture. And even Tyson Fury's defense has gone down in the last few years, as seen in his last fight. Well, his last fight versus Wilder, he got hit finally far too much and dropped twice against a guy that was winded and that he was dominating. So even Fury's uh, defense is not the same as it used to be, and, and it will happen because of age. Uh, and I hope that the anticipated Fury-Usyk fight does happen. 
that that'll be a great thing for boxing. That'll be a big fight outside of the United States. That's a huge international fight, and probably the biggest fight internationally to be made right now. Okay, on to the next question. Let me go see who's next. By the way, LL, Malcolm, great questions, man. Great fucking questions. All right. From uh, my buddy Raphael. Raphael asks, how would Bud and Errol stack up with the 90s welterweights? Well, I'm only going to discuss four. The four of, you talking about the four kings of the early 80s, Hagler, Duran, Leonard, uh, Hagler, Duran, Leonard, Hearns. In the ninth, the the mid to late nineties, you had four welterweight kings that were great. It and was other than the early eighties of Hearns, Duran, Benitez, Leonard, Cuevas. You know that that was a, a loaded welterweight division from nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty one. The 90s uh, welterweights from 1995 to 2000 were, were just as loaded. And we're talking, the four I'm talking about that I will compare Errol and Bud to, Pernell Sweepy Whitaker, Felix Tito Trinidad, Oscar De La Hoya, and Ike Quartet. Errol and Bud would be very competitive against those four guys. Um, Both would have... 50-50 shots at beating Oscar De La Hoya. Oscar De La Hoya was a great welterweight. People shit shit on him. And and I'm I'm always making fun of the guy because I think he's a sensitive asshole. But as a welterweight, he was very competitive in fights versus Pernell Whitaker and Ike Quartet. Now, you can make an argument that Quartet and Whitaker could have won those fights. Um, And I had I had Quartet winning going into the 12th round and De La Hoya's late knockdown gave him a one point victory on my scorecard. <clears throat> um and that was a tremendous fight. Tremendous fight. Uh matter of fact, I will be doing that fight on another uh, a podcast. Um follow me on Twitter cuz I don't promote other podcasts on this podcast. This is strictly for this podcast. So follow me on Twitter Robert Silver 5768 and you will see uh the platform for that podcast. But that was a great fight. Uh, the Pernell Whitaker, Oscar De La Hoya was a very scientific fight where both men were trying to outbox each other. And that fight, I thought Whitaker won, but there were several rounds, just like the Corte fight, that could have gone either way. I felt De La Hoya was fleeced against Tito Trinidad. And I'm a black Puerto Rican and huge fan of Felix Tito Trinidad. And Trinidad lost that fight. and They gave it. They gave it to Trinidad. That was highway robbery. First time that De La Hoya <laughs> got the wrong end of a of, of a decision. Um. And so De La Hoya fought the other three guys and came up with a two and one record against the other three guys. It could have easily been one and two. It could have been one one and one. Um. Three close fights, and I, I definitely thought he beat Trinidad, and the other two fights could have gone either way. De La Hoya versus Spencer Crawford would be a tough fight for either fighter. Uh, De La Hoya underrated. De La Hoya had a great left jab. Uh, could I think Crawford would be too small to beat De La Hoya, but then again, 
let me backtrack. Pernell Whitaker was six inches shorter, almost six inches shorter than De La Hoya, and he gave De La Hoya hell. And Crawford hits harder than Pernell, but not as great defensively as Pernell. It would be tough for me to choose. Errol and, and Bud would definitely, definitely have chances at beating De La Hoya. Could either man beat I Quarte? Could either man get past Quarte's boomerang of a left jab, a battering jab? I Quarte has one of the five had one of the five greatest jabs in the history of boxing. Quarte, 147 pounds, was a menace. Could Spencer Crawford overcome that great jab? That's also a very tough fight, and to me, a 50-50 fight. Pernell Whitaker beats Bud Crawford, in my opinion. I don't think Pernell beats Errol Spence because I think Pernell would be too small for Spence and it would be a lot. Of, Spence puts a lot of pressure on, on a fighter and I think Pernell would lose a close decision to Errol Spence. Pernell is not getting knocked out by anybody. Um, he beats Crawford by decision and he loses to Spence by decision, in my opinion. Am I missing any of the four kings? Uh, Felix Tito Trinidad. Errol Spence would put a lot of pressure on Tito Trinidad, and that would be to his detriment. Tito knocks out Spence, and Tito knocks out Bud Crawford, because Bud Crawford is not going to be able to outbox a five foot eleven Tito Trinidad. Uh, uh, Bud Crawford at five foot eight, too small for Tito. Tito puts both knocks both men out, in my opinion, my opinion, and so that's uh. The four. And then, of course, you had Shane Mosley come in 2000, but I'm not going to count him because he didn't become a welterweight champion until 2000. So that's my answer to your question, Raphael. Let me know what you th thought of that. Um, Spence and Bud would be highly competitive in that era, but I don't think they would beat the ultimate welterweight in Tito Trinidad because I don't think either man could move around the ring for 12 rounds like Oscar De La Hoya did. I think both men would become aggressive by nature and eventually get put out to pasture. All right, now on to the next question. All right, I think I have these questions are from my email, so let me get to that. All right, I think. Okay, here we go. Um, nice guy, Eddie X, he talks about... Uh, Navarrete from last week and um he goes Navarrete man I like him but Shakur would pick him apart Navarrete would be dog food for Shakur Stevenson Shakur Stevenson will hit him at every as I mentioned last week on the podcast Navarrete's defense is non-existent Shakur is the best defensive fighter on the planet, and when he retires, I predict he will be in the conversation alongside Floyd Mayweather and Pernell Whitaker and Willie Pep as the greatest defensive fighter that ever lived, right? And he would land combination after combination against Navarrete and brutalize him. Baez was hitting Navarrete with movement, with angles, and was winning the fight before Navarrete knocked him out with a singular shot to the body. That's not happening against Shakur. Shakur does not get hit cleanly. It will be Shakur all night long. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be at the Shakur Stevenson fight September 23rd from the Prudential Center live. I'll be there, be the first fight I attend in over five years. Um, I will, I will uh, 
I will record some parts while I'm there talking on the fight. To, and so you'll hear some clips of me doing play-by-play -play from my seat. <laughs> so, yeah, Navarrete Eddie has no shot in the world at beating Shakur Stevenson. I don't give a damn what any so-called boxing expert out there can state. It's not happening. He's not beating him. All right, now. Do I, I think, yeah, I have one more question, and I believe this is from Will Davis. Let me see, Will, where's your question at? Will, here we go, Will, 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 Will. All right, here we go. Will wants me to break down this CBS Sports top five. Let me look at this, pound for pound. This CBS pound for pound top five is, Pathetic. It's fucking pathetic. Just like Ring Magazine's top ten is. Will, they got Usyk five, Terrence Crawford four, Errol Spence three, Naomi Noe two, and Canelo number one. How the fuck do you have Canelo number one? Ring Magazine had Canelo number five. He got totally dominated in his fight. Will, you wanted to you the question you asked was how does Usyk compare with the other guys on this list? Well, he's better than Canelo. One thousand percent Canelo does not belong on anybody's top five pound for pound list. Number five in Ring Magazine's pound for pound list. And I blocked the entire staff of Ring Magazine when they gave me their ludicrous reasons why Fulton, Shakur, and Devin Haney are not in their top 10. Oh, well, the level of opposition is not as strong as Canelo's and Lomachenko. Motherfucker, they are better fighters than Lomachenko and motherfucker Canelo Alvarez right now. Don't give me that bullshit. Right? Get the fuck out of here. Right? Niall and Noe is the greatest fighter on the planet right now that's alive, that's active. All right? He's number one in my book. I Don't, don't at me because he's the best fighter in the world, period. Right? As far as two to five, if you want, if you want to say Usyk's two, Bud's two, Errol's two, I'm not going to argue with you. Those guys all definitely deserve that number two ranking. It so you can say two A, two B, two C. Usyk, Bud, and Spence. Hopefully, Bud and Spence fight to, uh, this year before the year ends. Because please, it's it's about time. But that answers your question, Will, and that ends. The question and answer portion of the podcast. Now, before I go into my historical overview of Ricardo Finito Lopez, I want to make my prediction prediction on this Sunday night's Fox pay-per-view uh, main event between Luis Ortiz and Andy Ruiz. By the way, $75? Are you fucking kidding me? When you just had Usyk versus Joshua last week on the zone, for their twenty dollar monthly fee, how does how is that not a pay per view? And Ortiz versus Ruiz is that's pathetic. That being said, this is this fight is similar to Comey versus Pedraza, in that both fighters need this fight desperately. Ortiz, however old he is, um, I think in the birth certificate they 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 found in his hometown in Cuba, he I think he's turning seventy two. Uh, later this year, so for a 71-year-old fighter, he is still, still damn good. Um, Ruiz is more active inside the ring. 
I'm going to make, I, you know, I've been wrong in my last two predictions. I predicted Joshua would beat Usyk. Usyk beat Joshua. I predicted Comey would beat Pedraza. It was a draw. This week, I'm going to make another uh, prediction against the curve, against the wave. And I'm going to predict Ortiz by late KO over Andy Ruiz because Ruiz has incredible power. And I think he's going to catch Ruiz. Ruiz will build up an early lead and Ruiz will get knocked out while ahead of Luis Ortiz. And that's my prediction for this fight. Now on to my 25th greatest fighter of the last 25 years, Ricardo Finito Lopez. All right. And I wrote, when the 105-pound strawweight division originated in 1987, I totally ignored that division as I felt it was an unnecessary division in a sport that already had too many divisions and titles. Some things never change, ladies and gentlemen. It's even worse today. It was not until 1990 when 24-year-old Mexican Ricardo Finito Lopez defeated Hideyuki Ohashi in his 27th fight to win the WBC version of that title. For eight years, Lopez successfully defended his crown 21 times, which is a major, major reason why he's the 25th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. The first time my father and I saw Lopez fight, my father was shocked at how the 5'5 Lopez could stand 105 and maintain his incredible power and stamina. Lopez fought tall and worked everything off his totem pole of a jab. Also, Lopez was one of the great body punches of the 90s and had incredible punching power in both hands, which made him damn near impossible to defeat. After destroying Ohashi in five rounds, Lopez began cleaning out the 105-pound division brick by brick. On July 3rd, 1993, Lopez defended his title for the seventh time against former thigh world life flyweight champion Saman Sorgeturang in what was undeniably his finest performance of his career. Lopez dropped Sorgeturang three times before referee Vince Delgado stopped the fight late in round two. Lopez was now due for a super fight. Unfortunately, the two biggest fighters a division above him Future Hall of Famers Michael Carbajal and Chiquita Gonzalez would rather fight each other three times than fight Lopez. Both men would spend the rest of their career avoiding the Mexican warrior. Lopez, unable to secure a major payday, concentrated on destroying more 105-pound contenders. The first time I saw Lopez fight live in person, I took my father to see him August 23, 1997 at Madison Square Garden. That night, Felix, with Felix Trinidad in the main event, Lopez defended his 105-pound title for the 19th time against a miniature 5'2 Puerto Rican and WBO champion Alex Sanchez. This fight was also for Sanchez's WBO title. Once again, Lopez proved he was on another level as he batted Sanchez from pillar to post until referee Arthur McCanty Jr. showed mercy and stopped the fight. Lopez was 31 and still looked as invincible as ever. Then came Rosendo Alvarez. On March 7, 1998, Lopez, now the WBC and WBO 105-pound champion, faced the reigning WBA champion Rosendo Alvarez of Nicaragua in his second consecutive title unification fight. Alvarez was the first fighter I ever saw who walked, who walked through Lopez's high-powered offense and was outlanding the Mexican superstar. 
Alvarez even knocked down Lopez for the first time in Lopez's career in round two. Then in round seven, both men's head collided, resulting in a huge gash above Lopez's right eye, causing Arthur, referee Arthur McCanty Sr., Junior's father, to stop the fight. The fight went to the scorecards because of the W. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go off script here. Lopez should have lost this fight. The, Lopez got a draw in this fight. The same reason Julio Cesar Chavez got a win against Frankie Randall in in their rematch. The WBC rules back then was when a accidental headbutt headbutt occurred, who whoever did not bleed got a point deducted. The guy who 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 bled, even though it was an accidental butt, would get the benefit of the doubt, which was a ridiculous rule. If the WBC rule wasn't in effect, Lopez would have lost a seven-round technical decision. Instead, he got a gift draw. Now, I'm off the script. That point deduction resulted in the fight being a draw. On Judge Dalby Shirley's card, he had a 66-66 even. If not for the point deduction, Alvarez would have handed Lopez his first loss. Instead, Lopez escaped with a gift draw. They would fight each other eight months later in an immediate rematch. At the weigh-in for the rematch, Alvarez came in three pounds over the weight limit and was stripped of the WBA title. Lopez agreed to go on with the fight as he wanted to add the WBA title to his ledger. On November 13, 1998, Lopez once again had his hands full with Alvarez as he struggled to win a very tough split decision to unify the WBC, WBO, and WBA titles. After eight years of dominating the 105-pound title, Lopez relinquished all three titles to move up to 108 pounds. On October 2nd, 1999, the now 33-year-old Lopez challenged slick boxer Will Grisby for his IBF 108-pound title. Will Grisby being one of the few American junior flyweight champions that ever lived. Lopez was able to outbox the crafty Grisby over 12 rounds to become a two-division world champion. He would successfully defend the belt twice before, before finally retiring at the age of 35 in 2001. I attended his final fight on September 29th against Solani Patello. This was on the undercard of Bernard Hopkins' virtuoso destruction of Felix Trinidad. Even at 35, Lopez looked as polished and dangerous as ever in knocking out his South African challenger in the eighth round. It was the fitting end to, a, to an iconic career. Ricardo Lopez finished his career undefeated with a 51-0-1 record, the only blemish being the, the controversial draw against Rosendo Alvarez, with 38 knockouts. Lopez's only blemish was the <laughs> repeating myself. Lopez was not only the longest reigning 105-pound champion of all time, he was also the longest reigning champion of the 1990s. Coupled with, with his incredible offensive referee and power, Finito more than deserved to be the 25th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, he would have been even higher had he not been ducked by Michael Carball and Chiquito Gonzalez because, in my opinion, he would have knocked out both those fighters. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.